Yvonne McDermott-Ruiz, uh, who is an associate professor of law at the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law at uh, Swansea University. She is also an academic fellow of the Honourable Society of the Inner Temple and a tour tenant at Invictus Chambers, London. Uh, she has published wi widely uh, in her specific fields of international law. Uh, she is the author of uh, Fairness in International Criminal Trials, a recent book by the OUP, and over 50 journal articles and book chapters on international criminal procedure, human rights, and the law of evidence in international criminal trials. And I think this is what she is going to be speaking uh, to us today, uh, with the title Proving International Crimes. So if you would join in welcoming uh, Yvette, please. Thank you. thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all very much for, for coming today. And special thanks to Teletand and Daniel for the invitation. Um, I'm really honoured to be here. I've followed the podcast for the last couple of years now, so it's a, a, quite a surreal experience to be featured on one, but there we are. Uh, so the title of my talk today is Proving International Crimes, and this is based on research I've been doing over the last couple of years, actually. Um, I'm currently writing a, a monograph on this topic, so it's really wonderful to have the opportunity to share some of the initial conclusions and thoughts from that book with you today all the feedback very gratefully received. Um, so evidence and proof are often mentioned in the same term together, as though the, the two concepts were interchangeable. But of course, the ideas of evidence and proof are quite distinct uh, concepts. Luges and Gilbert have provided this helpful definition. Uh, proof is the result or effect of evidence, while evidence is the medium or means by which a fact is proven or proved or disproved. Um, and this research, this body of research, was inspired by uh, an observation that the evidence side of international criminal law had received quite a lot of attention, whereas the proof side had been somewhat neglected. Um, this is particularly true for the huge body of literature that we have on rules of admissibility of evidence, in particular as the rules on the admissibility of written witness statements in lieu of oral testimony became more liberalised over the lifetime of the contemporary international criminal tribunals that was subject to a great deal of academic commentary and criticism, whereas proof kind of played a side uh, role to all of that. Um, I think Nancy Combs's book, Fact Finding Without Facts, really marked the first significant turn away from this uh, focus on admissibility in international criminal law. Uh, so in her book, Combs, through this really quite remarkable microscopic analysis of witness statements and testimony, uh, discovered that there were inconsistencies, uh, often serious inconsistencies in such issues as dates, times, who was present in a particular area at a particular time, uh, and so forth. So that, that book is exceptionally significant, but I would argue that Combs's book is still a book about evidence and not proof, insofar as she doesn't really tell us a great deal about the consequences of these inconsistencies in practice, and often stops short of drawing conclusions on that. Um, another recent development on proof in international criminal trials is the publication late last year of the Case Matrix Network's uh, report called Means of Proof for sexual and gender-based violence crimes. Uh, so this report outlines various types of evidence that were used to prove particular crimes in 20 key cases on sexual and gender-based violence. So means of proof 
in that context means simply evidence. So while these analyses and typologies of evidence are exceptionally important and useful, there remains then still a gap in the literature in examining the evaluation of that evidence. How do judges analyse, synthesise and weigh up the huge amounts of evidence that comes before them in the course of international criminal trials? And it's with that issue that my book is predominantly concerned. So today I'd like to talk to you about three themes related to that topic. Um, the first is how differently constituted chambers, and often different judges sitting within the same chamber, diverge in their approach to the evaluation of evidence. The second is the standard of proof, or standards of proof when we're talking about the International Criminal Court, which has different standards of proof depending on the stage of proceedings. Uh, and how what those standards actually require remains uncertain. And the third theme is the, the structure and scope of international judgments and how these might be improved to strengthen the clarity and the focus of the court's factual and legal findings. So, turning to the first theme. Um, it's clear from a number of fairly recent dissenting and separate opinions that a divergence of opinion exists amongst international judges on the approach to be taken to the evaluation of evidence. On one hand, we see some criticisms by some judges that their colleagues have taken an excessively fragmentary view of the evidence. Uh, we see this, for example, in the majority opinion in Katanga uh, trial judgment and the joint dissent of ju judges Tarfusa, Tarfusa and Trentifilova in the Nijajolo appeals judgment. Uh, there, the judges Tarfusa and Trentifilova argued against the evaluation of each individual piece of evidence as if it existed in a hermetically sealed compartment, I'm quoting. Um, in Stanisic and Simitovic, similarly, the prosecutor argued that the trial chamber had erred in what it called its compartmentalised assessment of the evidence, which they said obscured the coherence of the prosecution case. And the prosecution appeal was partially successful, um, and the, those defendants are now undergoing retrial some 15 years after they were first transferred to The Hague to stand trial in the ICTY. On the other hand, then, we see some judges who criticise their colleagues' broad uh, view of the evidentiary record as a whole. So, for example, in uh, Cecilge, uh, Judge Latanzi described her colleagues what she called their flawed or at best cursory analysis of the evidence, whereas Judge Baird and Karadzic argued that some of his colleagues' factual findings, uh, but one finding in particular, constituted what he called speculation run riot. It's a nice uh, quote. Um, so these two approaches to the evaluation of evidence, I uh, argue, can be classified as either atomistic or holistic. And here I'm borrowing from a great body of uh, scholarship on US evidence law, particularly the works of authors like Mike Pardot, Ronald Allen. Um, so the atomistic approach examines each piece of evidence, uh, its strengths and weaknesses, before forming an opinion on whether the evidentiary record as a whole uh, can form the basis of a conclusion. On the other hand, the holistic approach takes a view based on the evidential record as a whole before working backwards to determine which pieces of evidence led the chamber to that overall conclusion. Um, <clears throat> both approaches have their critics. So with atomism, there's this um, criticism that we sometimes see that uh, by drilling down into each evidential proposition 
uh, an um, atomistic <coughs> approach might lead judges to lose sight of their overall intuition on the culpability of the accused, so rendering them unable to sort of see the wood for the trees, so to speak. Um, that might be a relevant argument where the standard of proof is non-team conviction du judge, uh, but I would argue that it's profoundly unsuitable to one where the standard of proof is that of proof beyond reasonable doubt. If a judge has previously been convinced by the narrative presented by the prosecution on the accused's role, but a rigorous analysis of the arguments raised some doubt, uh, reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the accused, then in my view that can only be a positive thing. On the other hand, critics of the holistic approach uh, warn that it might be used to sort of paper over the cracks, uh, so to speak, and allow conclusions to be drawn from a broad evaluation of the evidence, uh, even where there are some gaps in that evidence. An appeal to holism might also lead to a less focused prosecution case. And I think this is exemplified, for example, in uh, the ICTR's trial judgment in Batware, where the chamber noted that the prosecution had not made any specific submissions in its closing brief on 11 paragraphs of the indictment. And they said, well, this would normally signal that the prosecution um, was no longer pursuing uh, charges based on those allegations. Uh, nevertheless, the chamber noted that it had asked the prosecutor for comments on this issue, to which it received the reply, the trial record speaks for itself. <laughs> uh, and so the chamber went on to consider the culpability of the accused for those counts on the basis of the evidential record as a whole. So this shows that holism might uh, allow the prosecution, uh, might lead to a, a less focused prosecution case, in that it might allow the prosecution to lay down all of the evidence it has without explicitly linking that to the charges and hoping that some of it will stick to some of the charges. Uh, hardly an ideal trial strategy, and certainly one that makes it exceptionally difficult for the accused to defend himself or herself against the charges. And that's not to suggest that a holistic approach always favours guilt. Um, the majority in the Sheshelch uh, acquittal consistently refers to the evidence as a whole in finding that the prosecution uh, case is not supported by that evidence. While the majority in Katanga uh, in, took a holistic approach in re reaching the precise opposite conclusion, so in convicting Katanga. Um, rather than seeing the two approaches as incompatible camps from which the international judge must choose, I think we can develop a framework that combines the best bits of both the holistic and the atomistic approaches. Um, individual pieces of evidence and the inferences that they're said to prove could, can and should be subjected to searching scrutiny, but this must take place in the analysis of the evidentiary record as a whole. Um, Mark Lamberg, writing in the Journal of International <coughs> Criminal Justice, uh, has argued that international judges, international criminal judges, take the following steps in reaching their conclusions. He says, first, they evaluate a single piece of evidence, then they weigh the totality of the evidence in favour or against the pro proposition asserted, and then they make their final determination of whether the combined evidential value is sufficient to establish the pro uh, proposition. I don't agree with Clamberg that this is how things, the evaluation of evidence currently works in international criminal law. Indeed, in one of the very few judicial statements we have 
on how evidence is evaluated in practice, thus from the Natagarura appeals judgment, two of those three steps are excluded. Uh, but I do think it's a good model for how the process of evaluation should work. Uh, Clamberg's model is, is certainly preferable to the status quo, where we see hollow statements such as, um, it does not necessarily follow that because the trial chamber did not refer to any particular evidence or testimony in its reasoning, it disregarded it, uh, are common. These types of statements can give an impression of empty holism, where judgments are based on an overall feeling rather than a clearly articulated evidentiary basis. It's quite remarkable that over two decades uh, of practice in contemporary international criminal tribunals, no consistent approach to, as to how judges should weigh evidence and use it for fact-finding has emerged. The same can be said for the lack of clarity surrounding the precise requirements of the standard of proof. Uh, the concept of proof beyond reasonable doubt is, of course, uh, notoriously difficult to define, and judges in this legal system in the UK have tried to refa refrain in so far as possible from giving instructions to the jury on the definition of the standard of proof. Indeed, since we're at the Public International Law Discussion Group, I thought it was worthy of note that the International Court of Justice for many years refrained um, or declined to enunciate its standard of proof. Uh, this was criticised by Judge Higgins in her dissent in the Oil Platforms case, and so perhaps it's unsurprising that the court later on became, began to articulate clearer standards for evidence and proof after she became president of the court, particularly, I think, in the Bosnian genocide case, we see an articulation of standards of evidence and proof for the International Court of Justice. Um, it might have been thought necessary in the early years of the International Criminal Tribunal's operation uh, for judges to come to an agreed uh, explicit understanding of what the standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt actually means. Uh, the argument would go that these are professional judges with a great deal of expertise. On the other hand, it could be argued that given the great diversity of backgrounds from which international criminal justice uh, judges hail, and in light of the deep-seated divide uh, between judges' approaches as evidenced by these strongly worded dissenting and separate opinions that we've just discussed, there's an even greater need for an explicit formulation of what the standard of proof actually requires. Um, we can see a spectrum of opinions in practice. So Judge Antonetti in Sheshild uh, opine that proof beyond reasonable doubt requires what he called virtual certainty. Um, Judges Tarfuser and Trentifilova and Nujajolo used almost the same term in disagreeing with the trial chamber in that case, arguing that it had erred by requiring proof of facts with almost absolute certainty. So almost the same term reaching the precise opposite conclusions in what the standard of proof actually requires. Um, this divergence in approach on what quality and quantity of evidence is needed to meet the standard of proof is particularly keenly felt in uh, the International Criminal Court's confirmation of charges decisions issued to date. Um, this is a topic I've written about in detail for an article just published in the Journal of International Criminal Justice, uh, where in the context of the ICC's Chambers Practice Manual, I examined the two most recent uh, confirmation decisions, so in the cases of al -Mahdi, and uh, Ongwen. As many of you will know, uh, for the confirmation of charges in the International Criminal Court, 
uh, the pretrial chamber must be convinced that there are substantial grounds to believe that the accused committed the crimes charged. And in its first 10 years of operation, four of 14 cases before the court fell at this procedural hurdle. Um, the chamber's practice manual attempts to relieve some of the uncertainty surrounding uh, the evidentiary threshold by establishing some guidelines on uh, the scope and quality of evidence required for the confirmation stage of proceedings. So it says that live witnesses are not required for this stage of proceedings, uh, that there's no need for the parties to prepare an in-depth analysis chart on the evidence, uh, and that pretrial chambers should not provide footnotes in the charges section uh, of their confirmation of charges decision. So that's the conclusive statement of the charges that are ultimately confirmed by the pretrial chamber. Now, in Ongwen, the defence argued that the confirmation decision was riddled with findings uh, whose basis and reasoning is not clear. One example given was the factual finding at paragraph 56 of the decision, stating that the evidence overwhelmingly shows an effective hierarchical structure within the LRA, the Lord's Redemption Army, but without any reference to that evidence. Uh, indeed, I think the length of the confirmation decision and the degree to which the factual findings are linked to particular pieces of evidence represents a notable departure from previous practice. Um, so the findings part of the decision in Ongwen is fewer than 50 pages long and it's got a total of 37 footnotes, um, which is remarkable given that 70 counts of crimes against humanity and war crimes were com uh, confirmed against Ongwen. So by way of comparison, the confirmation decision issued in the Charles Blegude case, he was where just four counts of crimes against humanity were confirmed, had uh, was over 72 pages long and had 421 footnotes referencing the evidence. So there's a clear departure in, in practice here. Uh, 37 footnotes for Angwen for 70 charges, uh, 421 footnotes for Blegude for four charges. Um, Judge Perrin de Bouchambeau, in his uh, partially dissenting, op uh, uh, dissenting opinion in Angwen, noted the Chamber's obligation to provide an account of the reasons why the charges were confirmed. That's not to say that there was no relevant evidence on file. The prosecutor had, uh, before the confirmation uh, decision, provided a pre-trial confirmation or a pre-confirmation brief which sets out in detail the evidence that linked the accused to the charges across over 250 pages. But very little of that evidence is actually referenced in the decision. So despite there being a readily apparent difference um, in the level of detail between its decision and previous confirmation decisions, the pretrial chamber was less than impressed by the defence's argument on the allegedly insufficient reasoning in the confirmation decision. In dismissing the leave to appeal request, it held that the decision, I'm quoting here, the decision is, in the view of the chamber, that rendered it sufficiently reasoned. So that's a rather unusual response to uh, allegations of insufficient reasoning. The right to a reasoned judgment requires that a court indicates with sufficient clarity the grounds on which they base their decision, so as to make it possible for an accused to exercise the right of appeal uh, if there is an error in those grounds. It would surely have been preferable for the Chamber to indicate precisely how the grounds on which the earlier decision was based were clearly stated in the decision, rather than entering into this circular argument that the decision was sufficiently reasoned because the Chamber that issued it thought it to be sufficiently reasoned. 
Um, similar issues arose in the Al-Mahdi uh, confirmation decision. In his dissent, Judge Kovacs criticised the decision for its absence of references to the relevant pieces of evidence that supported the prosecution's uh, allegations. In his opinion, the majority had failed to provide a clear and well-reasoned decision which presents a full account of the relevant facts and law in order to reveal transparency of the judicial process and guarantee a considerable degree of persuasiveness. So once again, we see this holism versus atomism uh, debate creep into international criminal proceedings, albeit here at an earlier stage in proceedings. Some might argue that the holistic approach is much more um, suitable uh, for this stage of proceedings and that all that's required at the confirmation of charges stage where the standard of proof is much lower than the trial uh, standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt. Um, the, the argument might go that to subject each piece of evidence to a level of scrutiny that requires the court to elaborate on precisely which element of the charges that evidence might support would be to raise the standard of proof from substantial grounds of, to believe to proof beyond reasonable doubt. However, as Judge Kovacs pointed out in his dissent in Al-Mahdi, an earlier stage of proceedings with a lower standard of proof does not justify a light assessment of facts or disregarding the proper presentation of the evidence submitted. It rather uh, simply requires that a serious examination be carried out of the evidence in light of that lower standard of proof. To subject the evidence to a less searching scrutiny would have the effect of rendering confirmation decisions effectively little more than a rubber stamping exercise, uh, where all that's required is for the prosecution to show that some ha crimes happened in the particular situation and that there are reasons to link the accused to those crimes, uh, with the precise details to be worked out later. This would effectively render the confirmation hearing meaningless and may well lead to inefficiencies later on where the prosecution is still developing its theory of the case as the trial progresses. So I want to end this talk with some final points on the structure and clarity of judgments. Um, you might have noticed that earlier I referred to majority and joint concurring opinions in some of the examples I gave to you. And um, this is a relatively new trend that we've witnessed in international criminal judgments in recent years. So not only do we have a judgment where, say, uh, two of the three judges form a majority, either convicting or acquitting the accused, and then the remaining judge on the bench issues a dissenting opinion. We now have a trend of judges who are in the majority appending a separate, often lengthy, concurring opinion, emphasising to us that they agree with themselves. Um, so I'm not sure how helpful this is. And this is particularly so given the already lengthy uh, nature of international criminal judgments. Um, I remember when the Charles Taylor judgment came out in 2012, uh, you know, if you looked at Twitter, social media, we were all shocked at the length of the judgment, 2,500 pages. Um, by now, that's not particularly uncommon. Uh, so the Mladic trial judgment issued last November uh, is five volumes, over 2,500 pages long, plus the confidential annex. Uh, similarly, the Karadic judgment, 2,600 pages, more than 2,600 pages long. Um, even appeals chamber judgments, such as the most recent one in Prilich and all, is over 1,500 pages long. Uh, and I'm not just complaining about this as an aggrieved academic who has to read these massive judgments for her research. Um, but, you know, it is at least a week's work 
assuming that you can read 500 pages a day and that you've got nothing else to, to do. Um, so it did make me think about the accessibility of these judgments, factual and legal findings, to um, the victims most affected by the incidents set out in these judgments. Um, ironically, perhaps, the huge scope of the judgments can be attributed, at least in part, uh, to the expectation of setting an historical record, or in the words of former Judge Nisariko, establishing undisputable findings regarding the atrocities committed. So, for example, um, in reading the Karadich judgment, one of the more striking aspects of the judgment to me was the failure of Dutch Bat um, and their role effectively in allowing. So, Dutch Bat was the, the UN force that was supposed to be protecting these civilians in, in the Srebrenica enclave. Um, and the Karadich judgment has findings that show, um, they talk about when Dutch Bat lost control of the enclave, they effectively helped the Serb forces to put these people on buses, uh, the buses which ultimately took some of them to their death. Uh, so that's, you know, really shocking and an important part of the narrative on how this genocide happened. But then when I was thinking about it, I said, well, actually, this has precisely nothing to do with Karadzic's liability. The failings of Dutchbat have nothing to do with his particular criminal liability. Um, and given that we don't get to the Dutchbat findings until 2,000 pages into the judgment, we might wonder about the accessibility of those really important factual findings. Um, so it might be more useful for the Chamber, uh, for all concerned, if the Chamber released a separate document on context of the crimes for these important factual findings, with the judgment itself limited to the specific elements of the crimes and modes of liability charged and how the evidence support, uh, supported those elements. More generally, I think a few small changes in the structure of judgments could make them much easier to navigate, such as maybe an index, um, a timeline of key events, maps, maybe even tables setting out the elements of each crime and whether they have been proven or not. Uh, a more focused judgment may lead to less repetition as well. Again, in Karadzic, one of the key aspects of the case was a, a phone conversation that Karadzic had with Deronik um, that was crucial in proving his knowledge that the detainees had been killed. And we have a full transcript of that conversation uh, at paragraphs 5,311, 5,710, and again at 5,772 of the judgment. And it's quoted again at length at paragraphs 5,805 and 5,806. Um, another thing that might be useful in judgments would be a clearer indication of how the chamber determined the probative value of witnesses' testimony and other evidence. So Jerome Frank, in his work, uh, talking about fact, the fact discretion that every trial court has, noted that this practice is uncaptured by rules or generalised practices, and as such it is, in his words, unruly. Being unruly, Frank said, it's usually unpredictable. The same could be said uh, about the unpredictability of which witnesses different chambers will find persuasive. We see this in particular with expert witnesses who often testify in more than one trial. It's not uncommon for the same expert's testimony to be given great weight in one case and for a different chamber to discount their testimony as somehow unreliable. Um, well, there's a lot to disagree with in Judge Antonetti's separate opinion in Shetters. Uh, one interesting aspect of it, I thought, was his table on the probative value of each witness's evidence 
and on each of the exhibits admitted to the trial record. So in this, these tables, he assigned levels of probative value on a seven-point scale from absolute probative value to very poor, no probative value. Uh, I'm not sure if this is intentional. There's no indication in the footnotes that it was. But the scale adopted by Judge Antonetti bears some similarities to scales that we see actually in the science of, of logic, such as the admiralty scale or the, the NATO system for the evaluation of particular intelligence sources and the level of confidence in the information. So this idea of a seven-point scale of how probative something is or not has a fairly sound logical basis. Um, of course, such evaluation of evidence using scales and metrics need not find its way uh, into the actual trial judgments issued, but it might be useful if the, in the judgment drafting process. Uh, I've heard on the grapevine that some, some chambers in the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia have adopted a similar traffic light system where they have a chart with uh, red, red, orange and green, depending on you know, things like reliability, relevance, corroboration of witness testimony. But I suspect that whether these are used in practice really depends on the individual judge's style. However, some indication of whether and how credibility was judged would certainly be preferable to the current system, where it's not uncommon for us to see statements like this one. This is from the Gotovina judgment. Um, some of the witnesses were evasive or not entirely truthful. Although aware of this, the trial chamber nevertheless sometimes relied on some aspects of those witnesses' testimonies. While the trial chamber may not always have explicitly stated whether it found these witnesses' testimonies or portions of his or her testimony credible, it consistently took the factors of credibility, reliability and demeanour into account in making findings on the evidence. So this approach makes it almost impossible for one of the parties to appeal on the basis that an error of fact has occurred, uh, because we're told that even where the chamber has not explicitly told us whether or not or why it found a witness's testimony or part of their testimony credible or reliable, it will have made that determination and based its overall judgment on that undisclosed assessment. Similarly, we often see this statement in judgments that even if a relevant piece of evidence has not been explicitly cited in making a finding, it will have been considered as part of the examination of evidence as a whole. So again, this type of catch-all provision obfuscates the precise evidentiary basis for particular findings of fact. Indeed, even where the weaknesses inherent in a particular witness's account is made explicit, and the chamber reassures us that their evidence has been treated with caution, the impact of that caution is often unclear. Taking the Nguyen-Batoire judgment as an example, uh, there the trial chamber noted that it treated the testimony of witnesses who testified under the pseudonyms Anan and Anat with caution, given that both had been convicted of their own crimes during the genocide. However, it then went on to base the accused conviction for incitement at two roadblocks, uh, solely based on one or both of those witnesses' testimony, despite there being no other co corroborating evidence and despite the existence of testimony, including testimony from United Nations military observers, to the contrary. So, to conclude, um, all of these aspects illustrate that proof in international criminal trials is an area that remains beset with uncertainty. In a sense, this is surprising. One might expect that by now we could expect 
uh, or be able to identify rather common approaches to the evaluation of evidence, a more or less shared understanding of the standard of proof and what it requires, and fairly common structures for judgments and their scope. But none of these things are clear, despite the fact that we're now well into the third decade of contemporary international criminal justice. In another way, this continued lack of clarity is not surprising at all, given the diversity of judicial backgrounds. So some judges may have been criminal court judges in their own system, uh, legal system, while others might have been diplomats or international law professors, and their appointment to the international bench might represent the first criminal trial they've sat in judgment of. And even for those judges who have experience of judging in the domestic context, uh, they're unlikely to have sat in a, a case, judgment of case, anything near to the scope of international criminal trials, where it's not uncommon for uh, the evidentiary record to be hundreds and thousands of pages. In some cases, the evidentiary record has been over a million pages of evidence. Um, it might also uh, be argued that judges differing legal systems, each with their own framework for the gathering, presentation, and evaluation of evidence would lead to discord uh, if they tried to reach agreements in some of these issues. But nevertheless, these divergences in backgrounds can't be an excuse for the continued lack of consistency to the evaluation of the evidence, the understanding of the requirements of the standard of proof, and the structure of judgments and the use of evidence in those judgments. They provide all the more reason, now more than ever, to attempt to find clarity and common grounds <clears throat> on these aspects of international criminal judging. The communities that these courts serve, be they local communities, the international community, or, or the legal community, deserve nothing less. Thank you.